to stewardship and uh, um, let me just uh, say to begin with that you know uh, these this series kind of works out over time I'm, I'm not planning in the diary that that's the week we're going to do so and so it's just the week we arrive at when it, we, we get to it we've had two weeks out of things with uh, I was at Epping and Colin was preaching and then last week of course <laughs> John Glass, the inimitable John Glass, was here preaching uh, for us. And so to re- today, let's recap a bit. Let me talk a bit, and then we'll pray. Let's recap a bit. The whole subject of stewardship is this. God is the owner of all things. Yep. He owns everything we think we own, including you. Yeah. He owns us. And we are his stewards. And the steward is responsible, given responsibility. We're accountable for how we do, and we'll be rewarded when we do well. We're stewards of ourselves. In fact, there's a little three-word thing thing that most people use in stewardship. Not bad. Time, talents, and treasure. We are accountable to God for how we run our lives, how we use this time we have. This one life. We're stewards of ourselves. We're stewards of what the Lord has given us in ourselves to be used for his glory and the good of others. Our talents, our abilities, our skills. Some of which are innate. God, God formed them in us, in our mother's womb. Some we learn along the way. But we are res- responsible, accountable for using the gifts and the talents and the skills that we have either been born with or we acquire over time to serve God and to serve others. And then... We're stewards of the wealth and cash flow he provides to us. In other words, the word treasure. And uh, then we we looked last time at money. Uh, That it's neither good nor amoral, which is to say it's neither good nor evil. As many say, people will say money's good or money's not good or bad. But let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus said money is a false god. He used the word mammon. It's a false god. It attracts the attention that God should attract. It attracts the devotion that God himself should attract. Jesus said that money is unrighteous. didn't say just not righteous. He said it's unrighteous, the opposite of righteous. Uh, I said, I commented then that most money that's printed or coined has a human face on it. It shows it's our stuff, not his stuff. We made it in our, our image. It's unrighteous. It's deceitful. It's disappointing. Money will fail us in time. And money can keep you from Christ. If you love money, you won't love the Lord. It's dangerous stuff that needs to be handled with caution. While we call money and wealth treasure, for a Christian, it can't be our treasure. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we go through these scriptures and these points. Deliver us, we ask you, from wrong thinking. May right thinking settle like dew on grass into our hearts and minds, forming in us new appetites, new ambitions, new actions, that your name may be honoured in and through us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me also say, before we get into this subject, that many of you give faithfully and beyond that generously, I want to applaud you and commend you for that. 
And others they would give, but you can't because the household finances are controlled by someone else. We understand that too. Okay. So this is not a, a dig at anybody in, uh, in those sorts of circumstances. But we, we need to explore these things together. Jesus said about this treasures business, don't, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth. Now that is counter-cultural. What does the world say? What do some preachers say? Collect all you can. Get as rich as you can. Jesus says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven. Being rich towards God. Earning I was going to say global reward. It's the eternal reward. <laughs> Actually, we do inherit the earth, so that is a global reward, isn't it? We inherit the whole thing. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. works the other way around too. Uh, your heart is where your treasure is. And it's interesting to test that. What do I get most upset about? Is it a wound to the finances of Bill that I wasn't expecting? Or is it things concerned with the gospel and things concerned with people and things concerned with the glory of God? You know, what wounds me? Where's my treasure? Where's my heart? You see, money is a matter of the heart. Money will either corrupt our heart or from a good heart we will manage money well. And we're instructed and warned by Scripture, in fact, indeed, by the Lord Jesus himself to keep our lives free from the love of money. Don't have any of it. Not one bit of it. It's like when they, they clean the yeast out of the household in, in, in an Israeli household as to going to the Passover festival. You know, no yeast. And, and to this day, Orthodox Jewish families will sweep the house from top to bottom to make sure there's no yeast in the house. Wipe down everything. Some of you ladies would be, you know, you, you'd have, you're good cleaners. You'd, you'd be doing that. Wipe down every surface so there's no yeast in the house. We are to keep ourselves free from the love of money. We looked at Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. And do you remember, which of course were, then were, were pieces of silver. But, you know, because the word talent, which means a piece of silver, has been preached so many years by English preachers particularly, now the word talent means gift or ability. It's switched over. But it meant originally and only a piece of silver. They were given a piece of silver. We've been given, yes, money, but also to, you know, what we also call talents, gifts and skills. Those who do well get this commendation. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Few things there in that parable equals money. Many things is far more than money. It's reward in part now and fully in eternity. We don't need money when the kingdom comes. But we will have huge, huge, great splendor of enjoyment, of pleasure joy. So how should we handle this stuff money? Dangerous stuff. The, answer, the, the first answer we need to come to, the first thing is this, to give back the proportion that God asks of us. <coughs> to give him the first fruits. Tithing and then giving. 
The tithe is the first fruits, and first fruits is the tithe. That language is, is interchangeable through scriptures. It's sometimes one way, sometimes another way. I'm going to make no apology for presenting the Christian case for tithing. The first thing we should do when we receive any income is to honor the Lord with the first fruits, which has a proportion. It has a, a number on it. It's 10%, the tithe. We watched that video earlier. Leviticus 7, 27, sorry, says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. There are those who argue, yeah, but I'm not into agriculture, so I don't need to tithe. Well, I think that's a pretty lame excuse, isn't it? Pretty lame argument. If I can avoid growing anything, I don't need to tithe. <laughs> okay, but you, gain, you receive income. You receive income, you receive cash flow, you receive salary, you receive whatever. Every tenth belongs to the Lord. Now, some people come up with these objections we're not going to deal with now. Oh, but that's the Old Testament. That's the law, and we're not under the law. Uh, Jesus didn't mention tithing. Well, let me pick through those for you. First of all, Jesus didn't address every issue in the law, but the ones he did address and changed, we are, he's very clear about there's a lot of the Old Testament law Jesus didn't repeat. Because, listen to this, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Watch this with me. <coughs> Modern day Christians need to read this scripture and get it in. Do not assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill or to complete. I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So there's a, there's a responsibility on preachers and teachers to handle the law wisely. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, who were scrupulous law keepers, so they thought, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to exceed them. Excel beyond them. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't argue from Jesus' silence about any issue in the law. In the same discourse going on there in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, Jesus goes on to take the laws about murder, adultery, divorce, lying, revenge, loving your neighbor, and drives those commands from just an outward appearance of keeping it to a heart level of, of doing it from the heart from an inward righteousness that's then that, that expressed in actions. He makes it even tougher. You've got to do this from the heart now. You know, it's not just committing adultery, it's wanting to commit adultery with that person who isn't your spouse. Not under the law, let's be clear about this, 
We're not bound to the religious rituals of Israel. They were fulfilled in Jesus Messiah. The offerings, the sacrifices, the, the festivals, all fulfilled in and through Jesus. We're not bound by the food laws of Israel. Why? Because, mark this down, Mark 7 verse 19, Jesus pronounced all foods clean. And when, the, when the, the churches met together, the first council of the churches in, in, in Acts, I think it's chapter 13, I didn't write this down, they agreed together that the food laws and other Old Testament laws were not binding upon Gentile Christians. They asked them to abstain from sexual immorality and from meat that had been strangled that still had the blood in it. That's all they asked. That's all they asked. We're not bound by the food laws. Our nation is not run on the governmental and judicial laws, judicial laws of Israel. We don't stone people to death. We don't need to have capital punishment because that was part of that law, okay? Um, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments and the other moral laws about sexual morality, about justice and fairness and mercy towards your neighbour and the foreigner and so on, those moral issues still stand today. They are not put away. They are not abolished. That law measures every single human being and the verdict is this, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're measured by the law of God. So the scripture does say, yes, we're not under law but under grace. But grace teaches us and leads us and empowers us not to be law breakers but law keepers. 1 John repeatedly tells us that one of the signs we're the children of God is that we keep his commands. We don't break them, we keep them. And we keep them from our heart. The righteousness of the law, to quote Romans, is fulfilled in us when we live by the empowering grace and spirit of God. We don't overthrow the law. Our righteousness fulfills the law, as Jesus said. Not just outwardly like the Pharisees, but from renewed and inspired and equipped hearts. We are not beyond the law. We are to exceed the law. Go beyond it. A righteousness that exceeds the external legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees. So that's a bit about law. All right? And that's a big subject. <laughs> Let's move on. Yes, it is Old Testament, but it's even older than you think. Tithing predates the law. It's not mosaical. That is from Moses. It's patriarchal. It's from Abraham. In Genesis 14, Abraham gave Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High, who foreshadows Jesus, says Hebrews, a tenth of everything he had. In Genesis 28, his grandson Jacob promises the Lord that if the Lord will help him and bless him, he will give him a tenth of all that God gives him. Now in between there, there's another generation, Isaac. I don't think that, I can't argue from silence that Isaac didn't tithe. I don't think it did skip that generation. I think this went from father to son to father to son. They knew this as a principle of honouring Yahweh, how to live by faith in the, in the God Most High, was that they, it was the family new tradition, if you like, that this is how we do it. We honour God by giving him the tenth. And then in Hebrews, Paul draws an interesting example, saying that, Levi, or the Levites, who under the law received tithes from the other Israelites, paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were in, literally, the loins, <laughs> the sexual organs of, 
of, of Abraham when he tithed. Now, that's a strange argument to Western minds. But they were, they were tithers before they were receivers, is what Paul is saying to us. Tithing predates the Lord. It's a principle of living by faith before God. Tithing existed already and was brought to order by the law of God for Israel through Moses. But in our honouring the Lord, if you think about that principle of how does the law work now, more than, exceeding, excelling, we should be aiming to excel and exceed what the law required, which was the 10%. And by the way, yes, Jesus did mention tithing. Yes, he did. Here it is. Matthew 23, this calumny against the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill and cumin. Cumin is pronounced, isn't it? Yet you have neglected the more importance than that. Let's just stop there for a moment. These guys were so religious, so legalistic, they went into the backyard, we would say, and cut bits from all of their herbs and brought those as well. Yeah? That punctilious, detail, detail. Jesus says, you go in the garden, you, you cut down 10% of all your, your herds, your crops, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Do you see the moral issues there that still remain of the law? Justice, mercy, and faith. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. What are the others? Tithing. If Jesus was going to dismiss tithing and say it's no longer relevant, that's where he would have done it and he didn't do it. He supported it. But he said, of course, there are things that are far more important than that. How we deal with people. Whether we act justly and mercifully in our dealings with people. Jesus says here, take care of the bigger issues but don't neglect tithing. I said last time, which is three weeks ago now, these three things. Some people don't believe in tithing, to which I say, fine, you can go and excel it. Do more than. Fulfill the law. You know? Have a righteousness which is greater than the scribes and faith. If you want to think like that, fine. But you, you know, don't think that you're, you can dismiss tithing and do less than that and say, I'm, I'm fine, I'm doing less than that. But, you know. Some people believe in tithing but don't do it. And some people believe in tithing and do it. Since tithing is to one of the Lord with our first fruits, if you believe it's true but fail to do it, then you, you are failing to one of the Lord. And I said as well, some people go to a church where most people tithe, but they personally don't. And Let me put this. The, that person benefits week by week in their fellowship from, from what others are giving, week by week, month by month. But those are supporting the leadership, the activities, the facilities. You know, do you know there's a whole heap of things we need to do in terms of maintenance and repairs on this building? You know, we need to start making some collections. We'll come to that in a minute to do those things. But if you don't participate in that, guess what? Everybody else is paying for you to have the benefit. What, what do you think of that? I'll leave you to think about that one. I'm going to turn to the famous scripture, Malachi. Warning and promise. Malachi 3. Let me just say, Malachi was written about 400 years before Jesus came. And it was the final word from the Lord, Yahweh, to Israel. Uh, it was to a small group of people. Only tens of thousands of people came back from captivity 
into uh, Judea, and then they rebuilt the, the, the city, they rebuilt the temple. Uh, the great majority of the, of the people of Israel, the ten tribes, and of the two tribes, Joshua and Benjamin, and the Levites as well, the great majority of people never came back from captivity. It was a remnant, a remnant. And God is speaking to that remnant who is, he's led back. He chose those to come back, and he wants them now to be faithful to him. And part of that discussion, that dialogue between God and this group of people, another part is the Haggai, this is in Malachi. Since the days of your fathers you've turned from my statutes, you've not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you ask, how can we return? Will a man rob God? God hasn't answered them yet, has he? He will. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates, some versions have windows of heaven, and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you. That's a lovely promise, isn't it? But you know what? That's dependent upon you being faithful, as he's just described. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in the field, will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a delightful land, says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Mention Haggai, he also prophesied around the same sort of time during the period of the restoration, that, that remnant coming back from captivity in Babylon or Persia eventually. Here's Haggai earlier on when they were, they were building the city but they stopped working on building the temple. They, they, so they're, doing, they're building their houses and neglecting building God's house. And this is the word that the Lord sent through Haggai to them some years before Malachi. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. <laughs> you drink, but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. And the wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. <laughs> it's very expressive, isn't it? Does Malachi 3 apply to us? Well, not in every detail, of course. We're not building a physical building, thank God. And most of us are not into agriculture. We're not raising sheep and uh, growing corn. And, but it, it nevertheless is a call back to basic principles of how we honour the Lord with the first fruits, with the tithe. I believe that that still remains. And I just want to pick up on two points from Malachi. Here. Number one, the tithe belongs to the Lord. It's not a choice I'm making, it's a, an instruction I'm obeying. God asks of it from me. I'm responding to his request. I'm not making a decision, I'm simply being obedient. I'm not making a choice, I should say. It's a decision, please. I'm not making a choice. I'm free to choose here. Okay, but you've, 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 been, you've been asked to do something. 
God is owner and we're stewards. Everything we receive comes from him and everything in our hands remains his. But he claims the return to himself of the first 10% of all that he gives us. Those are the terms of our stewardship. And according to Malachi and the word of the Lord through Malachi, withholding the tithe from him is robbing him and depriving his house from food, from supply. In the Old Testament, God had a place, a tabernacle or a temple. But in the New Testament, he has a household. It's a community, a fellowship. There should be provision for God's household. The local church is the Lord's storehouse from which we all are to be helped. May the Lord help us that we, we can learn to so give that rather like the early church, when there's someone in need, we, just, we, we can do it. We can respond straight away because there's, there's bread in God's house. There's resources in the household for us to help and support one another. The tithe belongs to the Lord. In giving that, I am merely being faithful and obedient. Second point, very simple point is this. Obedience leads to blessing. I know it's the current thing nowadays to go around decreeing and declaring and confessing, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. No, there's always a because in Scripture. There's a because, there's a reason. And you're blessed in some ways. Yes, you're blessed with every heavenly blessing, every blessing of the Spirit and heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. That doesn't depend on anything you do. But other areas of blessing we can only experience when we, when we, when we relate to God and respond to God and obey him. And this windows of heaven thing is entirely conditional on what? Us responding to him and being faithful in tithes and collections. The tithe belongs to the Lord. It is a Jew. But listen to this. When we faithfully return the first fruits, the tithe to him, he blesses us. I mean, you think, what? Do you get that? When you simply do what he's asked you to do, he's pleased with you. Let me add further to that. And if you can do it cheerfully and willingly, he's even more pleased with you. God loves a cheerful giver. So just obeying him, even with a struggle, will please him and he will bless you. And when you get your heart in gear and you can do it cheerfully and willingly, then he'll bless you even more. This idea of the windows of heaven... Oh, sorry, obedience leads to blessing and, uh, and within obedience, faithful giving leads to blessing. It's the promise of God. Now, when Judeans, you know, the, the remnant had gone back to, 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 to Judea, not Israel, to Judea, to Jerusalem, heard this windows of heaven. They knew what that was. How many of you remember the flood? Genesis 6, 7, 8. God opened the windows of heaven and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and the earth was flooded. So God is not saying, I'm going to drown you, you know, opening the windows of heaven. He's saying, I'm going to open the windows of heaven in a similar kind of way and I'm going to pour out, what? Blessing upon you. I'm not going to kill you, I'm going to help you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to provide more to you. But you get the picture. The floodgates, the windows are opened and there is a pouring out. No, Oh, here's a bit for you then. It's a pouring out. More blessing than you can contain. You can't handle it because of obedient faith. 
In fact, I was, how, you reading through the uh, Bible reading notes, the plan? Leviticus 25. God commanded that every seventh year in the history of Israel, they would let the land lie fallow. They wouldn't sow it, they, w- they wouldn't plow it, they wouldn't sow it, they wouldn't gather anything. Here's the promise of God connected. If you will obey me and leave the land fallow for the, each seventh year, which they never did, by the way, which is, which is part of the, the captivity story. They never did let it do that. They never did do the 49th year, the 50th year of the Jubilee either. He said, if you let it lie fallow, here's what I'll do. In the sixth year, you'll gain enough from the land for three years. Think, well, how does three years work? Because they're going to eat it in the seventh year and in the eighth year until what's sown in the eighth year can be reaped in the ninth year. If you will obey me and leave the land fallow for one year, I'll give you three years' worth of food that you will not run out. They never tested him. They never did it. Never, ever did that. They never tested the promise of God. Here in Malachi, God says to the people then, and I believe to us today, test me. Come on. Now, do you remember Jesus saying to to Satan, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God? This is the one place in Scripture where God says, test me. Check me out. You 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 can try me with this one. The one place. If you will do this, see if I don't do that. Blessing follows obedience. Pouring out from heaven upon us. Having honoured the Lord with our tithe, our first fruits, what remains in our hands is by the promise of God then blessed. And let me put it this way. The 90% or maybe a bit less because we've given some more in other ways. We'll come to that in a minute. His blessed provision that remains in my hands will be enough for all our needs. Not enough that I think I can go down the BMW garage and buy a new one this week. I'm not saying that. But it will, God will meet all our needs. God will provide, it will be enough because it will have the blessing of God upon it. Enough until the next income arrives. And we go through the cycle again, honouring the Lord with our first fruits, with a 10% of what is given us, and continuing then to live under his blessing. Like the seventh year, enough to last, enough to get you through. That's the promise of God. I believe it's true. We've proven it to be true. Carl and I. But keeping back what belongs to the Lord is opting out of his blessing. And we may then find indeed that we are just like those workmen in Haggai, putting money into a bag that's got holes in it. We wonder, where does the money go? Never seem to have enough. Let me summarize this for you. Unblessed cash flow is never enough. Blessed cash flow is more than enough for all needs. For all that is necessary and needful. Not for your wish list, but for all our needs. Because the tithe is the first portion, it's the first fruits, let me put that expressively, from the top. It's linked to this first fruits thing. My personal conviction is to give the Lord 10% of gross income. That is before tax deductions. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So here's my reasoning. All right, I'm not going to fall out with you over it. 
Why should I render to God after Caesar's had his share? And what's left when Caesar's done his bit? I don't know if gift aid comes into this, but, but my friends, we may not have gift aid forever. All it takes is a change in the government of this country and we will lose that. So I say, well, Caesar's had his bid already, so God bless Caesar, and there you go. But I'm going to give to God 10% of all that God gave me before Caesar took his share, before the government took their slice. That's my opinion, my conviction, my personal practice. Now, after tithing, there are other ways of giving which will honour and please the Lord. Offerings and collections. An offering in Old Testament language was a personal choice, you brought something to honour the Lord, which was in addition to having tithe. When the Israelites brought offerings, it was agricultural produce, it was an animal, uh, f- uh, f- uh, produce, you know, uh, fruit, vegetables, or it was money, it was valuables. Each individual offering may have been brought together because there was a collection happening. When they built the tabernacle, when they built the temple, the people were invited to bring your offering to the collection so this can happen. Do you get it? We, in some churches you talk about the collection money, the collection, the collection. Well, you know, biblically speaking, the collection is we're gathering together, we're putting this in for this purpose, to get this thing done. We're, we're raising a collection to replace our inefficient underfloor heating with, with uh, you know, air conditioning. I daydream about doing that. Right? Tens of thousands. It would actually be, you know, cool the place in summer and warm it in winter. Now, if we're ever going to do that, we would need to have a collection. We raise the money together. Yet, what happens is, in our hearts, we, com- we, 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 we are stirred, we, are commi- we commit ourselves to give a certain amount. We do that as to the Lord. The Lord sees it. He's pleased with it. It's, in a sense, an offering that's pleasing to him. But it's practically going into a collection to get something done or to support somebody here or to give money there. That is a collection. But when you give it, you give it as to the Lord. So on the one hand, it's an offering. and the other hand, it's a collection. It's how the... Local church achieves something together, each according to their ability and to the, how God stirs their hearts, contributing to a common cause. We raise an offering, we gather a collection. They're, they're two ways of saying a similar thing. Paul, in the epistles, writes about receiving offerings from the churches, which were for a collection that he and others then delivered to the saints who were in need in a famine in Judea. He also received personal help, cash, support from the Philippians. And when he received it, he called that a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He's using Old Testament language to illustrate how pleased God was with their generosity towards Paul. But nowhere in the New Testament is our handling of money in giving called sacrifice. It's never called that. We do not make sacrifices. Jesus did. The language of sacrifice is is filled out, completed in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't cost us something when we give. In fact, David, King David said, shall I give to the Lord what costs me nothing? What doesn't have some impact for me? Oh, I can easily, oh, I'll just check that out. I can easily afford that. 
shall I give to the Lord which is just, just that or shall I give something that actually costs me something? But it isn't sacrifice. Giving to God should not be a matter of pain and suffering and death but of joy and thanksgiving and being happy about it. So the language of sacrifice should never be touched into this issue of giving. Yet there is cost. Absolutely. But at a heart level, I'm not killing something. I'm not feeling pain. I'm giving gladly. The language of sacrifice is much mistaken. By the way, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in a week of his time. The third way of giving is alms. I know that version from the King James, of course, in Matthew 5. It means helping the needy, helping the poor, helping the suffering. Jesus teaches us about this giving to the needy, to the poor. Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness, deeds of righteousness, deeds of of, of practical Christianity, in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he talks about giving and praying and fasting, doesn't he? Let's just, just look at giving today. When you give to the poor, this was not tithing, this was not bringing offerings, there was a separate area in the temple where they had, where I'm told, they were big brass receptacles and they had a, like a funnel shape on the top and so they were nicknamed the trumpets because when you put money in there, they made a sound as the money ran down the, the brass, yeah? And Jesus says, when you give the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Here comes the rich man with his big bag. Do you see me giving? Do you see me giving? Do you see me giving? I assure you, says Jesus, they've got their reward. You want a pat on the back? Have your pat on the back. Go home. But when you give to the poor, and then he uses this strange expression, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's like even, it's a mystery to you. It is so secret, so discreet, you're even forgetting what you're doing. You're not even keeping track. So that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And the the older version says, will reward you openly. What he sees in secret, he gives you open reward for. But you just didn't let anybody know. You didn't let anybody know. Notice that is specifically to do with when you help the needy. That's not tithes, that's not offerings, that's not collections. It's when you help the needy. We can give directly to those in need or use a Christian organization like Be Free, like Barnabas Fund, to deliver that help. Because to deliver help to someone who is not close to me, I've got to entrust it to someone else to get it there, haven't I? So we need to find trustworthy partners who will deliver the help I want to get to those people. As I give them money, it gets there. Yes? Yes. There are two reasons, I believe, why Jesus tells us to give to those in need discreetly privately, even secretly, anonymously perhaps. Number one, because then only the Lord sees. We're doing this for for the audience of one. God forbid, you know, there are people who go on the telly and they say, you know, we've we've, we've given this here and we've given that here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Go and read the scripture. 
Do it so only the Lord sees. But the second reason is equally, is equally important. So that the dignity of the person helped is defended. They've received the help without everybody needing to know about it. Exactly. You've defended their dignity. Yeah. And if we're not help, in helping those in need, the persecuted, the poor, or whatever, if we're not interested in their dignity, in their being able to stand on their own two feet, having some self-respect, having some self-worth, then we're missing the point. We're just doing it to make ourselves feel good rather than do good to them. So those are two reasons why Jesus talks about give alms, help the poor, help the needy, help the suffering, help the persecuted, the distressed, privately, secretly. They don't even need to know it's you who did it. That's, the, that's what Jesus is saying. Yeah? They don't need to know. Whispering grass, you don't need to know. That's an old song, isn't it? Here are two promises from the scriptures about the Lord's blessing, specifically on this helping the poor. Not about tithes and offerings, just specifically helping the needy. I love these. Proverbs 19, 17. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord. He'll give a reward to the lender. The Lord marks it down and says, I owe you that one. I'll, I'll reward you for that. Yeah? He writes it, you know, if God is a bookkeeper, it goes in his book. Well done, you gave to, the, to that person in need. Proverbs 28, verse 7. The one who gives to the poor will not be in need. But the one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. So kindness to the poor, in practical ways, in cash terms, is blessed by God. God has a huge heart for the poor, the needy, the distressed in this world. And one of the things that distresses me is how far our modern-day politics has moved away from having any concern at all for those who have so little, have so little hope, have so little around them, who live on such poor ways, don't even have enough to feed, to live on, to eat, and so on. And no one cares. Certainly not the government. Then the third, another way that we give is to fund Christian workers. Christian charities, Christian causes. We can choose to support regularly some Christian work around, around the world. Some of us still help Tanita, TJ's sister, yeah. after all this time. We only see, she's coming back this month. This month. Yeah, she's yeah. back in the UK, so we'll see her yeah, a couple of times this year, over here this year. Uh, others support other workers in other parts of the world. Christian causes, organizations, overseas missions work, maybe a Christian lobby or legal organization such as CARE, Christian Institute, Christian Concern. And in doing those things, what I'm suggesting to you is this is just a small amount of money. We're just one of a whole number of contributors who are just adding a little bit so the thing adds up to something which has a size and a momentum to help those people do that job, whatever it is, serving the poor, lobbying parliament, all of these things. All right? You know, it, it, it's, it's two coffees a month kind of level, four or five pounds. <laughs> we, ask, we, we encourage you to do that freely missions and be free to sign up and do that directly. Give four or five pounds a month. It's the kind of amount of money that many of us won't really miss, but it added up where a couple of hundred people. That mounts up to something. It begins to be something significant. So to sum up, we give to the Lord, firstly, our times, our first fruits. Return to the Lord. It's his due. It's his honour. Let me just mention something about honour. 
In some cultures, honor is a big thing. In modern Western culture, it isn't at all. It's just no one understands honor anymore, respect anymore. But we can be respectful in our language, but not in our behavior. And that's exactly the issue the Lord was taking his people to task about. Jesus himself said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? You don't do what I ask you. So lordship, respect, honor, is about obeying what the Lord says. Not just what we say in worship or in prayer or singing songs. We give our first fruits to honor the Lord who gave us all that we have received. Then we make offerings we support the needy, we support Christian work, but those are smaller amounts and irregular amounts maybe. Though I'm, been, I'm personally challenged about not coming empty-handed before the Lord, so I'll talk about that another time. When we give beyond the tithe, when we find that, you know, I want to give to this as well, I'm going to put up some money for that, I'm going to start to support that monthly, whatever. Do you know what? We are moving beyond faithfulness and obedience to Generosity. Generosity starts after the tithe, not before. Beyond the disciplines of giving lies the broad vista of generosity. Generosity. When we begin to move from I need to do this to I want to do this. When disciplines have become a joy. When you know that the Lord is blessing you with more than enough, more than you need, you can begin to be generous. Generosity only starts after the tithe. I'm going to be generous, I'm going to tithe. No, that's not called generous, that's called honor. That's called returning what belongs to the Lord. But after that, yes, generosity begins to be kick, kick in and begin to be learned. And generosity is defined not by how much we give, but by how much we keep. See, a man with millions of pounds can give a million here or there. Oh, that's very generous. No, he can easily afford it. Yeah? Someone else who's only got an income of a few hundred pounds a week and says, on top of my giving to God this week, I'm going to give another £10 to this. That's generous. It's measured by how much is left, not how much you gave. Why? Uh, let me just say as well that you can't divide up your tithe and give that in bits and pieces different ways. And people talk about seed money. And there's a lot of error about seed money. I'll deal with that when we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and talk more about generosity. I'm just headlining generosity for you today. Now, years ago, if I was preaching giving, I would use the scripture, give and it will be given to you. Do you remember that one? Give and it will be given to you. Well, I can't now. Do you know why? Because I've understood it. Shame on me. Here's why. That phrase is taken from the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7, Mark 4, and Luke 6. And the context in those places is this, how we deal with people. The measure we measure to others is the measure that will be measured to us. When we judge others, we'll be, we'll be judged. It's the measure you use will be measured to you. All right? And when Jesus has given, it will be given to you. In the longer version, he goes on to say, men will measure back to you. Not God will measure. Men will measure back into your lap. A full measure. Shaken together, pressed down, running over. That's what you do with a sack of grain. You fill the grain, you bounce it. You fill it some more, you bounce it until the grain is spilling off the top. You cannot get one more piece of grain into that sack. 
And Jesus is saying, the measure you use will be measured to you till it's absolutely full. That is not a promise about giving. That's not the context. I've had to stop using it that way. Because this week, I went, oh, my word. Sorry, Lord. So I can't in good conscience apply that to tithing and giving. It's, the context is the way you handle other people is the way they'll handle you. Therefore, Jesus in another place says, do to others as you would wish them to do to you. It's about this horizontal working out of relationships with people where that God will make sure there is justice done. And if we act mercifully towards people, we will get mercy. Not from them specifically, but from others. There's payback. Everything has payback. Everything comes back around. Whether now or later. But there's no escaping the payback. Because that's what God has ordered into his universe. Another key word before we conclude is this one. Contentment. Since God is owner and we're his stewards, what he gives us is enough. If we'll learn to use it in a godly way, it is enough. And we can be content with his provision. Contentment. I've got scriptures, we'll come to them another time. See, contentment is the opposite and antidote to covetousness. Wanting more, 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 more. Do you know what? If you're covetous, enough is never enough. Because when you've got enough, you want more. And when you get the more, you want more. You got this car, but you want that car. You got this TV, but I want that TV. (laughs) Enough is never enough because covetousness is working in your guts. It's the way the world works today. Without covetousness, you could switch off the advertising. It wouldn't work. People would say, what do you mean I don't need that? What are you telling me about that for? But it, it appeals to our human nature. But contentment. Christians... We are to pursue contentment. Make it our goal to be content in God. That doesn't mean we don't ask of him. If we see, we, we see a need, we have a big bill coming, we don't, Lord, please help us with this. All right? Lord, Lord, best I know I'm being faithful in, 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 in uh, living by faith in you and giving back to you. So would you please, we weren't expecting this, Lord. This is a shocker. Would you please help us? doesn't mean we don't inquire, we don't ask. But we're content with God. And we're content with his provision. We're going to come back to another Sunday. And I also owe it to you to speak one Sunday about managing our cash flow as God's stewards. How to make the best use of what is provided. But I have one final scripture for today. It reports the words of the Lord Jesus to us, but interestingly, it's not found in the Gospels, it's found in the book of Acts. It comes at the end of Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, a heartbreaking speech because he knows he's never going to see them again. Acts 20. Let me read it to you. That's where it finishes, but let me read it to you a bit before then. This is Paul concluding this speech of farewell. And now I commit you to God and to the message of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands have provided for my needs. I've worked for my own good. And for those who are with me, 
In every way I've shown you that by laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, some of us think we're pursuing blessing, but we haven't even started to pursue blessing yet. Because if we were pursuing blessing, we'd, we'd apply the Malachi test. Test me now. See whether I won't open the windows of heaven. When you obey me in this, I'll, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you can't contain. We, we bulk at this scripture here. Ah, oh, I can't be. No, no. It's nice when people give you things, isn't it? It's more blessed to give than to receive. You think, how does that work? Because God is the giver. And when we learn to do some things that are a bit like him, we begin to grow more like him. And we understand his pleasure and his joy over us and his hand upon us, his blessing. The blessing of God is like the imprint of his hand. You know, if I put my hand on it, you know, one of our kids put my hand on the shoulder, I let it rest there for a while, and then I take it away. They could still feel the warmth of my hand, of my, my, that communication of my love, my affection. The blessing of God is the sense of his hand upon you, his goodness towards you, the affirmation that he's with you and for you, and he's not going to let you drift, and he's not going to let you go without. That's the blessing of God. It's not just, it does, it's not measured in money. It's more than money. It's the knowledge of his goodness and his kindness and his presence and his strength and his wisdom. This teaching of the Lord Jesus is entirely opposite to the values and ways of this world. It is more blessed to give than receive. So let me do what I didn't do three weeks ago. And give you these pictures here. <laughs> I forgot to do this. The way we are to handle this tricky stuff, money, which is a bit like handling a hot coal, you know, if you've got a hot coal in one hand, you wouldn't be, oh, you do that with it. Where can I put it? Where can I get rid of it, even? You know, it's like <laughs> juggling a hot coal, because it's dangerous stuff. If you grab it, it's going to burn you. We need open hands to receive from the Lord what He wants to give us however much that is, or in some cases, however little that is. There are times of increase and times of decrease. Paul, when we look at contentment, Paul says, I know how to be content with much or little. I know how to eat well or go hungry. I can do all those things through Christ's strength in me. You thought you knew that scripture. That's the context. I can, I can endure prosperity or poverty for a time so long as the Lord is with me. I can do all things through Christ's strength in me. Open hands to receive from the Lord. Open hands to receive, to return to him what is due to him. His honor, his respect, his first fruits, his time. Open hand, ready to do that. Open hands to give whatever else we choose to give as we're moved and stirred. Learning generosity. Being stirred and wanting to do something because our heart moves us to it. And open hands to handle carefully what remains. The 90 or the 85 or 82 or whatever it comes down to, once you've given in other ways as well. 
Jesus said it's more blessed to give. That's a female hand instead of the male one before. Okay, ladies? Put, put, put a nice lady's hand in there as well. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That is revolutionary truth. That is, that is world-defying truth. It, it challenges the world in the face and says, your values are wrong. The way you think, the get me, get me, get me, give me, give me, give me, is so false, so untrue, even though some preachers preach it. Jesus cuts right across that. Do not let your hearts be filled with the love of money. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where people will come and take it away from you, especially when you're dead. You can't take it with you when you're going. Lay up treasures in heaven. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Lord, your words are... We've looked at a number of the things you've said, Lord Jesus, today. And there's not one of them that doesn't cut across the way that the world thinks and even the way we've been told to think, even by some Christians, the way we've been told to think. But we want to receive the word of Christ richly into our own selves, that it may bear fruit back to you. It may change the way we think, we reason, we behave. It may change the way that we handle uh, cash flow and resources. It may indeed liberate us from being stressed out over finance and liberate us into an area of faith where we give to you and we trust you and we give to you and we trust you and we receive from you. And we are happy in the flow of your goodness and your provision rather than worrying all the time about something that will always fail us. Lord, change our hearts in these things, we pray. We do not want to become like the scribes and the Pharisees who do something just because it says so. We pray for hearts that are moved to cooperate with you and respond back to you in, in faith. An obedience that comes from faith, not just from law-keeping. May it be so, Lord Jesus, so that you are more glorified in us and that we are brighter lights in this dark world for you. A people who are living by different values, dancing to a different tune, marching to a different drumbeat. Amen.